Hello and welcome to the 2012 season of the Around the Nation podcast. Uh, for those of you who are new to the Around the Nation podcast, it's where I, uh, Pat Coleman, and Keith McMillan, the uh, lead columnist and columnist of Around the Nation on D3Football.com, take the uh, the first analytic look at the week that was and then look at ahead at uh, what will be next week in the uh, Division Three football season. So uh, I'm Pat Coleman. And I'm Keith McMillan. And this is uh, the Around the Nation podcast, so we uh, thank you for joining us. I was looking back through my records. We've been doing this for uh, more seasons than I can remember off the top of my head now. I, I believe this might be seven uh, seasons of the Around the Nation podcast. And, uh, you know, if you are uh, wondering, we'll probably end up talking for uh, probably around an hour, maybe a little bit less early in the season. It will, it will go towards an hour later in the season, so... I know a lot of you uh, are, uh, if you're coaches, you may be uh, cutting up your video right now. If you're uh, a player, maybe you're, uh, I don't know, walking a class or uh, doing something. Uh, I know this is not really workout music, so we get that. Uh, but we are just here to tell you uh, about uh, what happened in Division Three. put our spin on it, give you the analysis, and then uh, and then do a little look ahead. And so this was the first week of the season. Uh, we started on a Thursday night, and... Uh, you know, I took the opportunity to uh, see as many games as I possibly could with the uh, the games starting on Thursday night because uh, the first weekend fell on Labor Day weekend. So Division Three rules say you can play on Thursday night in that instance, and uh, Benedictine and Wheaton did so. On Friday night, uh, I went down to St. Louis to see WashU take on Wisconsin-Whitewater. Saturday afternoon on my way back up from St. Louis through Illinois, I saw Knox play Eureka in uh, a game that I had no idea was going to turn out to be that good. And then uh, at the end of the night, McMurray played Wartburg. So I ended up driving uh, 1,445 miles uh, officially in the process of this trip. I saw four games, only one of which I think you could really qualify as a great game, but certainly saw some things that were... uh, that were worth seeing and worth getting a, a first set of eyes on here in the uh, Division Three football season. And usually, I, I try to invite Keith into uh, you know to banter in with with these sort of things. And I know Keith, for example, we were all really interested to see what uh, Wisconsin Whitewater would come out with in the first week of the season. Yeah, I, I think for for Whitewater um, losing Lavelle Coppage, who, who's been a steady presence in that backfield. For uh, you know, for the, the greater part of three seasons, um, and and actually maybe even the better part of four seasons, had a, a great career there. And then also losing the quarterback Matt Blanchard, the Gallardi Trophy uh, finalist. You know, you lose two key parts like that. They they had a lot back uh, on defense and, and along the lines. And you know, when you get to that level as a program, uh, there's guys waiting in the wings. You know, when, when you lose a great player, but you still want to. We, well, we and usually, uh, as we talk on the podcast, we're talking about us from a national perspective. And because Division Three is so large and so spread out, uh, you know, the 239 teams, you know, mostly based in, in that, that mid, you know, northeast, midwest, mid-Atlantic, but, but go all the way out to California and Washington State and, and down to Texas. And, uh, you know, there's, there's no way we can, uh, we can all see each other. So we want to see... Uh, we look at a lot of things from a national perspective, and, and Whitewater being the standard bearer uh, for Division Three, the you know the three-time national champion. I think a lot of eyes were on that game. In fact, we know for a fact a lot of eyes were on that game, right? Because you guys kept tweeting the uh, the number of unique viewers that, that were on the uh, on the stream there. 
give give a lot of credit to Wash U for taking that game. You know, there there've been a, a lot of seasons where uh, where Whitewater and and other teams from the WIAC couldn't fill their schedule with D three teams, and they would have to play NAIA or uh, you know teams from Division two, II, Division one AA. So uh, Whitewater now with the full D three schedule with uh, with Wash U and Buffalo State taking the games against uh, against Whitewater, and then and then the WIAC playing the eighth game. Uh, you know, playing one team twice. Um, Whitewater has a full D3 schedule now, which which is nice to see. But a long answer to a short question, I think we were all uh, kind of curious to see um, if Whitewater was, was just going to be able to reload, and uh, it looked like they did on Thursday. Long answer to a short question, by the way, is really kind of the name of the game here at the Around the Nation podcast. I'm the play-by-play guy. Keith is the analyst, so usually I set him up with a question and he takes the ball and, and runs with it. But uh, I also asked this question to uh, Lance Leipold. And, and first of all, kudos to Coach Leipold for standing out with me in the rain uh, after the game, uh, you know, torrential downpour with the uh, remnants of Hurricane Isaac blowing through St. Louis. And he talked to me about what uh, transpired with his offense, which struggled a little bit in the early going. I think anytime you get in these type of conditions and you have an opener, you, there's some things that can happen there that don't go as smoothly as you'd like. But, uh, you know, and I, we, we kind of persevered through that. And, uh, you know, I thought Des did a lot of good things. And I think it was a great learning experience for him and Lee and, and the rest of our offense. Yeah, so Desmond Ward struggled early. He put the ball on the turf twice. Uh, there was a there was an awkward exchange between him and uh, and and Brecky, a quarterback, uh, early in the game, and uh, then you know a, a backup came in to replace him for a series or two. But then Des, uh, Ward came back in, found his rhythm a little bit, and he ended up with over 100 yards rushing on the night, which apparently was just the 13th time in the past 150 some games that. Wash U has uh, allowed a 100-yard rusher. Uh, Ward, 14 for 108 and a touchdown. Uh, Steve Morris was the big guy on uh, offense in the receiving game. Tyler Huber has been banged up a little bit with injury. Uh, he was held to three catches for 13 yards, and, and Huber was pretty well covered. But uh, when that happened, uh, Steve Morris was was pretty easy to find. And he had seven catches for 103 yards and a touchdown, all of them in the first half as uh, Wash U uh held whitewater close early trailed 3 nothing was in the red zone uh with the uh, opportunity perhaps to kick a field goal they had a a kicker who was capable of uh of making from that distance but got picked off and then uh it turns out that that was the only time that uh washi was in the red zone the entire night ended up uh, 34 nothing whitewater with the victory um and to say you know what i saw of lee brecky some of it was pretty good some of it was uh you know, needed some improvement. Uh, the thing I liked about Brecky is that, uh, you know, he looked poised, um, which you would expect, you know, considering he played uh, and started five playoff games in 2010. Uh, but then, you know, didn't play a whole lot last year. Um, and he did a good job of uh, not staring down his primary receiver. And trust me, uh, I, I saw a lot of staring down the primary receiver in the four games I saw this weekend. Um, <laughs> so, you know, just to be honest with you, I know that that's, probably par for the course, you know, at, at this level uh, for, for a quarterback to not stare down his primary receiver. But the fact that he did it and so many didn't this weekend, uh, I just I felt I needed to point that out. And, um, you know, the, the struggles were, you know, he he, uh, he had a couple balls dropped, actually dropped by WashU defensive backs, especially early in the game. Uh, he was uh, he was missing. He was missing his targets. Uh, he was lucky he wasn't uh, he, he wasn't picked off. 
Uh, but clearly, you know, he's a guy who's who's going to be a a uh, you know the the next uh, good quarterback for them. I'm not sure if he's going to be the next great quarterback, but you know, Whitewater has gotten to the Stag Bowl without great quarterbacks and without great passing quarterbacks, I should say. You know, when I say when I say that, um, Keith, I'm thinking of Danny Jones. Um, you know, he's the he's probably the the standard bearer for. I don't know, maybe the Trent Dilfer of the recent Whitewater quarterbacks. You know, he, he led the team. You know, he and Beaver got them at the national championship, at least on the offensive side. But I, I'm not sure he was necessarily great quarterback in terms of, you know, purebred quarterbackness. Yeah, he wasn't a passer, but Danny Jones was a, was a leader and he was he was mobile and good with his feet. And Whitewater has shown that, that they can win uh, with, with different quarterbacking styles, you know, going back to, to Justin Jacobs and then Jones and, and Matt Blanchard in there. Um, and Lee Brecky, you know, if the name sounds familiar to you, that's because he started those five playoff games, not last season, but the season before. When uh, every week when when Whitewater had a playoff game, we were told Matt Blanchard would be ready to start. And then uh, Lee Brecky came out and, and started the game. So he played he's he's got a half a season of experience, all playoff games. And uh, this may have been just to him getting some jitters out, I guess, or not jitters, but um you know, get, getting back into the flow of things, actually starting. That is sort of a, it's a cliche, but it's kind of a real thing too for, for players. The, the, you, you, you build up to this, this moment in week one for, for the whole off season. You know, if, if you're someone that hasn't started, you build up to this moment and uh, whether or not you're nervous about it, sometimes it takes a little bit of time to, to get into the, the flow of the game. And uh, for, for Whitewater though, it clearly didn't affect them much. I mean, if you look at their MO of, of, you know the past seven stag bowls and uh in in the championships it's been running the ball and they did that well at, at washu uh 225 uh, 235 total yards um and then it's been it's defense you know and and they limited washu get this to 55 total yards 10 rushing yards and uh two of 14 on third downs so you know washu i think you know probably pretty game competitor and and you know, playing clearly, playing out of its league, you know, not just literally, but but really playing out of its league. And uh, Whitewater, that's a good first game for them. You know, you, you want to get a test in. You want to get somebody who'll push you a little bit. And uh, you know, I, I think you know Whitewater. The four interceptions probably went helped them a lot. And uh, that that's what they want to see. They want to see their defense play well. They want to see their running game play well. And and give Lee Brecky some time to sort of um, work his way into the job. He may. You know, he may never be the the passer that Matt Blanchard or was or, or Justin Jacobs was, but he's got that capability to to really throw the ball. And, and you know, if Tyler Huber is uh, is at full strength, you know, they'll have some games I think later in the season when they when they put up some some points and some good passing numbers. You mentioned the four interceptions, two of them by Marcus McLinn. He's a guy who stepped into the starting lineup because uh, Noah Tim has an ACL tear and is out for the season. He is, uh, and, and this is not going to be something they're going to be playing close to the vest. The WIAC, for those who don't know, has a 100-man roster limit, and if he's not on the 100-man roster at the beginning of the season, he can't uh, he can't play at any point during the season. And he was not on the 100. Uh, that's what Lance Leipold told me after the game. Uh, so 34 nothing. Uh, Whitewater with the win. I'm going to move forward to the Saturday afternoon game uh, because that's the one that's uh, the most interesting and it's the one that was on ESPN, for goodness sake. Uh, the highlights of uh, the Knox-Eureka game, which Eureka won by the score of 62-55, to 55, uh, a game uh, in which 
Sam Durley broke the uh, all-time single-game passing record for any level of the NCAA. He threw for 736 yards, completed 34 out of 52. Uh, He had two guys go over 200 yards each uh, in receiving on the game. One of them who had never played uh, a game of organized football in his entire life. That's... uh, it's Jordan Kindred, the uh, wide receiver slash uh, point guard for Eureka. He led uh, he led the conference in assists uh, last season and averaged 12.2 points a game, and he got 13 catches for over 250 yards. And uh, the thing is, you know, you, you you talk about the number of yards it takes, and you know, props to uh, Zamir Amin of Menlo, uh, whose uh, record was broken. And uh, and also, you know, for uh, for Sam Durley's sake, you know, he found out about the record when I told him about it, and here's what he had to say. Durley really understated there. I know it's uh it's kind of loud in the background, but basically, you know, talking about uh, putting together more of a, a relationship with Kindred, who is. Uh, Became his uh, his primary target that day, um, but also you know one of the the I don't want to say great things about this game because you know it, it's not a it wasn't a great display of uh, of overall football obviously but it was a, certainly a great display of uh, of of offensive technique let's put it that way you know between the team that uh, you know is uh, that was zero and ten last season and the, uh, another that was uh, you know that that struggled a little bit as well. But it was, you know, it was precision passing. And, you know, we talk about, um, talked about Kindred. Jake Bain is the other 200-yard receiver, seven catches for 207 yards and three touchdowns. But the one thing, and here's the thing, for those of you I'm going to give you, for those of you who didn't read kickoff or didn't get kickoff, and for those of you who got kickoff but didn't read the UMAC team previews, I can understand that. Our 239 team previews, you may not have read them all. Uh, but I wrote the Eureka team preview because I wrote the UMAC this year. And one of the things that uh, that Kurt Barth, the Eureka coach, told me about Durley is that Durley's a quarterback with a strong arm. But what he wanted, to, what what Barth wanted him to do this year was was uh, figure out how to check down more and throw more of the uh, intermediates and the underneath routes. And he did that to perfection. The, you know, he threw for 736 yards on just 34 completions. Just 34 completions. But that's because, you know, he had guys who were uh, averaging, for example, Jake Bain averaged almost 30 yards of reception. Uh, Matt Dawson had three catches for 91 yards. Uh, there's another guy with a 28.3 yards per reception average. The, be honest with you, Knox is, Knox is going to struggle. Their secondary wasn't very good. Nobody on either side was tackling. Uh, but... You know, you still have to be able to to make those throws. Guys have to be able to make those catches, and you know, 736 yards is obviously a, a lot of yardage. And Eureka might, uh, you know, win a few more games that way this year. Pat, I'd like to just say you're a lucky, lucky dog. <laughs> I know when you when you you know you picked out a weekend where you could attend as many games as you want to, and you you know you map out the schedule. And I know you and I both take it upon ourselves to try to get to a- any place in the country that we haven't been before. And so you, you pick this Knox Eureka game. It's a nice little rivalry. They call it the Lincoln Bowl. You know, it's two teams that um, 
you know, that, that haven't had a lot of success within their conference. So they get to play each other early in the season and somebody's going to win. And then you get to see this, uh, this record game, 736 passing yards. Um, awful fortunate of you to be there for that one because, um, you know, it's not, it's not a game that circle on the schedule from a national perspective and say, we got to get to that game, you, you know, but you, but you were there. And, uh, that's, that's part of what, you know, happens every Saturday and sometimes on Friday and Thursday across the country in, in Division Three, something amazing is happening at at you know twenty or thirty different sites. I mean, there's really you know great finishes or or, or record performances, all kinds of neat things. You know, and, and you mentioned that um, that the Knox and Eureka, the two teams, you know, that may that that struggle a little bit over the course of a long season, getting a chance to play each other. There was a couple other games like that. Teams uh, that we'll probably talk about later in the podcast. Who got a chance to uh, to to taste victory? You know, Juniata and Teal, uh, you know, one and nine team against the zero and ten team from last year. Played a three point game. Uh, Becker won, and uh, we had somebody else on the on the list. Hamlin uh, uh, Hamlin snapped a sixteen game losing streak. Yeah, Hamlin didn't score but forty one points, I think, all of last year, and then put up forty five on Saturday. The uh, I'll be honest with you, um, you know, the thing that. Uh, two things that attracted me about this game. Y- uh, you mentioned the one. Well, you mentioned both of them, but uh, the Lincoln Bowl being a new thing this year, I thought it was kind of a neat thing. Um, you know, the other thing is I had my ten-year-old son with me all weekend uh, on this trip, so I thought that you know we could uh, you know talk about American history a little bit. I'm sorry, I'm that kind of dad. Yeah, um, but uh, so there was that, and, and the thing that yeah, you know, you and I have. Well, at least I've made it my goal. I don't know if you've made it your goal, but I know we're keeping track of uh, every team that we've ever seen in Division Three. And, you know, you can't see all 239 teams in a year. It's not physically possible. There just aren't 120 playing dates to go out and see everybody. But, um, you know, I've been working through my list, and, you know, I'm, I'm over halfway through, and I had not seen Knox play, and I had not been to Knox's field. And I thought, well, you know, it's on the way. The map, uh, you know, the map allows me to be here. I could have gone to, um, I could have gone to Coe Monmouth, but I've seen both Coe and Monmouth play, uh, even though I've never been to Coe's field. So, um, you know, there were, I, I could have done that and then gone up to uh, Warburg McMurray, but I would have been kicking myself if I, uh, if I didn't see this game. And also, thanks to um, uh, Dobbs Auto Repair Service in St. Louis for making it possible for me to get to that game because I had a little bit of a trouble with flash flooding in St. Louis, shall we say, after uh, uh, Hurricane Isaac's uh, rain was dropped. So I found a, lucky to find a place that was open at 7 a.m. so I could make this game in the first place. Um, you go ahead. Oh, I was going to say these are the things Pat and I go through to try to uh, to try to bring Division Three to your you know computer laptop screen whatever the case may be um because it's just it's just such an expansive division and so many different you know a lot of these schools have have you know neat rivalries neat backgrounds and all that stuff and it really is tough to to try to be everywhere even though we'd like to be pat i think we did the math on it one time and it would take if we just went on saturdays counting all the way even to the stag bowl it would take like 21 or 22 years to get to every every school and, you know, you cut that in half and you say, even if I saw every team and I, di- I didn't count going to, to their home stadium just to see every team, you know, one on the road and one at home, it would still take 11 years. And even if we split it up between the two of us, you know, it would still take several years to, to be everywhere. And we've been a lot of places. I've, I've been to Coe 
but um but there's still so many that we'd love to get to and, and anybody that you know welcomes us thanks for having us and, and anybody that anywhere that we haven't been uh we're still trying to get there yeah we will get there uh that's my goal anyway uh, and, and my my the, list my list counts games back to 1991 so i've been working on this for a little while true i mean i i cheat too i count the games i played in and uh, i think places. those count that's just fine <laughs> yeah, places that I've been that I haven't been to, to cover. But, you know, the, the other thing, too, is that if, if we can't get there, uh, we have seven around the region columnists uh, who, um, you know, I don't know all their, their work schedules because we all have full-time jobs, but who, you know, if they're free on Saturdays and, and they would love to come to games. And I think it's important for, for not just Pat and I to see games, but to, to everybody who writes about teams to really see them, experience them, the, the, you know, the the atmosphere is different on different campuses the level of play is different in different conferences and in, and really unless you put your, your your eyes on that unless you stop and talk to coaches and st- talk to players you know all these things these facts that we've collected pat over the years the reason we can talk off the top of the head you know for an hour in a podcast is because uh, we've been to all those places and we, we've talked to all those people and, and, and have experienced uh the d3 life the uh, the first game I went to this weekend was the uh, game between Wheaton and Benedictine. I, I was interested to see, uh, you know, what Wheaton looked like. To be honest with you, I was interested to see who was going to play quarterback. Uh, Garrett Metter got the start for Wheaton, uh, but they were off to such a big lead uh, that Jordan Roberts came in in the second half and basically finished the game. So, if there is a quarterback controversy, or at least you know there there are two quarterbacks in that system, uh, I don't think that was particularly resolved. Um, you know, so. They're, uh, but they uh, they had little problem uh, handling Benedictine and Benedictine you know, said they were trying to step up their schedule in hopes of avoiding uh, if they'd won the conference in hopes of avoiding getting offered up to uh, one of the top seeds like they have each of the last two years they went to St. Thomas two years ago they had to go to Mount Union last year so they were hoping to uh, try to step up their schedule and and, uh, and avoid that uh, Benedictine looks like they might uh, they might end up pretty good this year at least in terms of the northern athletics conference uh and transfer a quarterback uh kyle schultz out of uh, division two wayne state that's the one in nebraska kyle's brother chris schultz is the uh, leading receiver for benedictine uh and he had uh he had been there already he transferred the year before and then kyle kyle with a c chris with a c kyle came to join him uh kyle uh really really liked to throw to his brother uh whether he was open or not uh when i mentioned uh, guys not l- looking off for their primary receiver. Uh, this might be one of the guys I was talking about, shall we say. Um, you know, uh, whenever when Kyle was looking to throw to Chris, he was looking to throw to Chris and maybe not anybody else. So, um, you know, uh, Wheaton uh, had some success in uh, breaking up some of those passes. John Borsellino is the guy who's the running back for Benedictine. He's um, was on the AFCA All-America team last year. Um, you know, I think a lot of uh, people point out that he ran for 80 yards against Mount Union last year. 52 of those were on one carry. Uh, and he did not look great in the in the running game against Wheaton uh, with just uh, 18 yards on 16 carries. Uh, they did try to get him the ball in the passing game. They actually even split him out wide. They uh, r- lined him up in the slot. They motioned him out of the backfield. And he did have five catches there. But, uh, you know, whether it's Benedictine or whether it's someone like Wisconsin Lutheran or Concordia Chicago... Um, or somebody in that league that uh, that wins the automatic bid and makes the tournament, um, 
I think they're going to need to go 9-1 and one if it's Benedictine or uh, if it's somebody else who wins the conference. They're going to have to run the table in order to uh, get a decent enough seed to uh, avoid the avoid the bottom seed and playing somebody like a Whitewater. You know, Pat, one thing I, I want to throw in here, though, when you talk about sometimes the the schools in the in the conferences that aren't quite as strong as the top conferences in D3, the 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 YACs and the OAC and the CCIW and Empire 8 and those the MIAC, those type of conferences, you know, the difference sometimes between them and, and the Northern Athletics or the ECFC is is the quality of line play. And so when you have a skilled guy like John Borsellino, you know, one of the reasons he may not be able to gain a whole lot of yards is because Benedictine doesn't have the same type of offensive and defensive lines uh, that you would see at a place like Wheaton. And I, I don't know what you tell me what your observation was, you know, when, when you saw those teams play, did you, did, did, was Wheaton just bigger and stronger and, and sort of push a, a team like Benedictine around? Bigger, stronger, faster also. Um, you know, and, and the reverse was, uh, was pretty true as well. Uh, the Wheaton offensive line against the Elmer's defense. Um, you know, we had a guy who was the, uh, uh, who's a, a preseason All-American on the defensive line for uh, Benedictine as a, as a defensive end. Uh, and he, um, he struggled early on and then basically almost didn't play the entire second half. So I don't know if he got dinged up a little bit as well, but uh, you know, Ben Lockton did not, uh, did not really impress either in his uh, in his in his limited playing time. So, um, you know, but this is a big step up for uh, for Benedictine. You know, they had uh, they played North Central in the past and then uh, and then uh, dropped that because they were uh, you know they were having trouble competing. Um, you, you, we know, uh, I think uh, most people may know that they lost to North Park each of the last two years, and North Park hasn't won a a conference game in uh, more than a decade. So. Uh, in the CCIW, so you know there's there's a there's still a gap, but you know Benedictine is uh, is is trying to change that. So uh, kudos to them for scheduling the game and and taking the return game next year. Um, the and the fourth game, uh, there's almost nothing. Uh, you know it, it it's uh, Warburg beat McMurray seventy three to nothing um, because of the, how late the first game ran. Uh, as you might imagine, one hundred and seventeen points, a lot of kickoffs, a lot of passes. Um, it was already going to be sketchy for me getting there uh, early in the game. I ended up getting there by halftime, and the game was pretty much over at that point. The uh, uh, Wartburg threw one pass the entire second half, and, and McMurray was about as overmatched as we would expect them to be. You know, They did finish the season last year with two consecutive wins, but remember they had lost like 41 of the previous 42 or something before that. So the gap between these schools was pretty large, um, and Wartburg you know, had... Uh, 12, 11 or 12 different uh, ball carriers. So uh, they they got a chance to run through their whole bench. Their freshman quarterback uh, was 15 of 18 in the first half and then uh, basically didn't play in the second half at all. And, um, you know, I'm not sure that we learned anything about either squad from a game like that. That's a little bit of a commentary on week one, too. You know, Warburg's going to be pretty good this season, but right, it doesn't do us any good, and I'm not sure how much good it does them to to play somebody uh, that you can beat by 73 points. And, and that's Wartburg particularly has been a school that's, that's played good games uh, in that, that they only have one, you know, non-conference opening. Um, 
No, not maybe, anymore. Maybe they have not two. anymore. They have two. three now, actually, because Cornell left to go to the Midwest Conference. That's right. So now you're right. But they have but, two other good. They have two other good teams. They play Bethel next week, and they're at Carthage in week three. See, that's why I was, the the Bethel game was the one that was hung uh, at the top of my tongue because they played Bethel. I know they played Saint Norbert before uh, in openers too. So hey, it's, you know, some coaches like to get that first game under the belt and uh, and, and get the W. Some some teams you can tell, and, and it happened in, in several places across the country in week one, want to get that good test. You know, uh, Delaware Valley Rowan, I think, was was a good example of that, although it was part of the, um, you know, the Mac and Jack Challenge. It was also two teams uh, getting that getting that first game against somebody else really good. That, that'll give them a good test. Uh, St. Thomas, I'm sorry, St. John Fisher and Thomas Moore was, was another one. And that was probably, of all the games this week, was the one that stood out to me. Uh, in my mind, the most as as a playoff team that sort of went hunting for another challenge, you know, another playoff team that it could face, you know, before it gets into its conference slate, um, you want to you want to play somebody right off the bat that gives you a test, and I think there's there's a little bit of a trickle down effect from that. And when you know, as a player, you start with a team that's that's going to push you. There's no slacking in the off season. There's no uh, everything at camp. It's geared toward that first game. It's, sometimes it's strange. You, know, you play it. You, if you play like an option team the first week, you know you spend way too much time trying to figure out how to stop stop the option, and then week two, you you know you, you focus on week two. A lot of that first month of practice is all geared toward that one game, and uh, I think there's a benefit in, in playing a good team week one. And I think I saw a little bit of evidence of that when uh, when I saw Johns Hopkins and uh, and Randolph Macon on Saturday. And and go ahead and tell us about that. I have a. I have a housekeeping note I need to tell coaches and SIDs about before we get into the rest of the games. But, you know, we spent, uh, uh, wow, 29 minutes talking about the four games I was at. So let's spend some time talking about the John, uh, Johns Hopkins Randolph making game. Well, I'll be brief and we can we can get into the lightning round here in a little bit. If, if we can ever really actually get some back and forth going, uh, you and I love to talk and, and people seem to like to listen to it. So um, game was at Homewood Field. Johns Hopkins is in the center of Baltimore. Baltimore is hosting a, a Grand Prix on the streets of Baltimore. So you had to go around the city uh, to get in on, on Saturday. Um, and Hopkins, as you may or may not know, plays uh, Division One lacrosse. They're allowed to play up for lacrosse. And so they have this uh, just built this field house at one end of the stadium. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a really great facility for D3. Uh, Randolph Macon only about um, maybe two hours from Baltimore, so a good crowd on both sides. And uh, in, in my mind, I went to that game figuring you know, Randolph Macon eight and two last season had a big win against Hampton Sydney at the end of the year, and, and maybe one of the teams that's going to challenge to win the ODAC. Johns Hopkins ten and zero last season in the Centennial. Centennial ODAC pretty evenly matched conferences. You know Johns Hopkins lost a lot from that team, so you figure it's going to be a great matchup. Uh, right off the bat, and uh, it was all Johns Hopkins in the first half, and uh, you know Randolph Macon put one good drive together, a 15-play touchdown drive at the start of the third. Hopkins came back and uh, and and scored again, and really gave Randolph Macon fits up front. And just as we talked about with the you know the difference between a Wheaton and a Benedictine, it was that sort of difference on Saturday between John Johns Hopkins and uh, and Randolph Macon, and those are you know. Two schools that they're not going to be recruiting from the exact same pool of kids, but they get the same level of player. And, uh, you know, to see that much difference in, in the lines 
was uh, was a little bit shocking. Seven, six sacks from Johns Hopkins, including one for a safety. Uh, they rushed 49 times for 344 yards, and Macon ran 40 times for 32 yards or something like that. It, it was very um, just a big disparity and, and, and a big shock for for Randolph Macon. And, and you know when they take that game, that's a game that I think both both schools, Hopkins and Macon, think they're going to get a pretty good test before they they, they you know play couple you know Hopkins only has the one non-conference game but Randolph Macon will play uh you know a handful before they get into their conference schedule you want to get those good tests in early if you feel like you're going to be a pretty good team well and Johns Hopkins for example remember the uh the one non-conference game they played last year was again Mer- against Merchant Marine um and between Merchant Marine and the uh, the rest of the Centennial Conference schedule, it may be that uh, Johns Hopkins just simply wasn't really prepared to see what a playoff team could be like when they entered the playoffs last year yeah it's a pretty good chance that St. John Fisher was the best team they played last year. And even being a, a you know second place team in the Empire Eight, going on the road in the playoffs, uh, they they were bigger and, and stronger. They they muscled Johns Hopkins around. And it, it's, you know, when we do those conference comparisons, Pat, it's interesting to see the difference, the way St. John Fisher at the end of last season pushed Hopkins around. That's the same way Hopkins pushed Randolph making around on uh, on Saturday in week one. And it's uh for Randolph Macon, they they got to regroup. Next week is going to be a big week. Uh, they're opening a brand new stadium, and uh, there there was there was a, a several schools I thought on Saturday that I think are going to be pretty good this year, and I think this will probably be the topic for around the nation on Thursday. Uh, several schools I think are going to be pretty good that lost on Saturday, and some of them just lost, like North Central, you know, respectable loss. To, to a, a YAC team in, in Wisconsin lacrosse. Del Val, respectable loss to Rowan. Um, Thomas Moore in overtime uh, at St. John Fisher. And then there's the teams that lost bad, and that's Randolph-Macon, Central, Franklin, uh, you know, teams like that who, who they got to regroup because they're teams that have a chance to win seven, eight, nine games this season. And, and as, as a player, it's, it's tough, I think, mentally. You you think you're gonna go ten and zero if you're from a pretty good program? You just you know you just believe it. They, the coaches beat it into you. You think you're gonna be good if you play your best, and then it's hard to deal with when you don't. Not only you don't play your best, but you 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 get your morale sort of beat down in a game like this. The Hopkins uh, ran off making score thirty six thirteen, and uh, you know the flip side for Johns Hopkins was I, I talked to Coach uh, Margraf after the game, and and he was saying you know week one can be a little bit of a crapshoot, which I think we all all. Uh, you know, most coaches across the country would would agree with that. The famous cliche uh, that we like to bring out, you know, the biggest difference between your team is in between week one and week two after they've gotten that first game out of the way. So it's tough to know exactly what to make out of the first game. And, and I'm talking from the perspective of having seen all the scores across the country. Margraf was talking about going in as a coach. You don't you're not even sure what you're going to get from your own team in week one. He said, you know, before the game, he said, just go play the first half hard. We'll see what happens and, and kind of adjust from there. And that sounds like a man who was expecting to see some jitters, you know, maybe some uncertainty in the first half. And there wasn't any of that. It was just, boom, right from the beginning. Uh, it was a quick 62-yard run um, and, and, you know, four touchdown drives. They, again, the sacks, they put pressure on Randolph making all day. And uh, for for Johns Hopkins, I, I thought they might struggle a little bit losing uh, Gallardi Trophy, you know, Final Ten quarterback Hewitt Tomlin. Um, I think they only had ten starters back, and and it was like you know it was like they had everybody back there. They were they were great. 
the uh, couple of um, housekeeping notes that I was talking about I want to get in before we move on with the the rest of the podcast and the, the lightning round, which, as Keith says, is never quite so fast. Um, first, uh, I know I've already gotten one nomination for this, but uh, coaches and you know, especially assistant coaches who end up being in charge of video. We are indeed doing play of the week again this year, and especially on this first week because of uh, because Monday's a Labor Day holiday. Um, you know, I know I may not have everybody's attention, but we still need uh, nominations by the end, uh, close of business Monday. In that case, uh, in this case, it's going to, it's uh, 5 PM Eastern time. Um, and you know, the thing about deadlines this year, especially is because, uh, you know, Keith works full time. I work full time, uh, doing separate jobs and they both demand a whole, a whole lot of our time and a lot of our attention. So, um, we don't really have the, uh, we, we, we have to sit down and do things when we're scheduled to do them. And for me, uh, I have a, a window of about an hour on Monday night where I can compile those plays, send them out to our voters, and let them vote Monday evening. Uh, sports information directors. Uh, the team of the week, which is our weekly honor roll, uh, is uh, uh, is back again this year as we've had it every year we've been here. Um, nomination deadline is 8 p.m. on Monday. Don't forget, uh, you need to upload your XML box score or your packed game file into the Presto Sports System, and then from there it's real easy. You pick a player, you write a few notes, nominate them. Uh, especially if it's defensive linemen, tight ends, uh, safeties. Those are the guys we get very few nominations on. Everybody likes to nominate a quarterback. I can say there's a guy who's probably got quarterbacks sewn up this week, um, but in general, I always seem to have about 15 or 16 quarterbacks to choose from and about 11 running backs and 12 wide receivers and like four defensive tackles or three defensive tackles. So don't forget those, uh, those underutilized, underknown guys, you know, a conference player of the week. They like those, they like those guys who rack up lots of tackles. So there's lots of linebackers uh, named conference player of the week, but you know, we know it takes 11 guys to make up a defense and we want to, uh, we want to recognize 11 guys, not 11 linebackers. So uh, just those things to keep in mind. Um, and, and to add on that too, it's you know it's hard for for us from a national perspective to you know to to make what to make of certain plays, you know, certain positions that don't have uh, there's no statistics to go by, or you know defensive backs sometimes you can't judge how well they played by how many interceptions they had. So having those eyes on the scene, having an SID who who saw the game and knows that a guy played really well you know, from the safety position or along the offensive line or something like that is really helpful. Yeah. Uh, you know, non-standard statistics, put them in the notes field, you know, like, you know, they only threw to, they only, you know, only threw to his side of the field once all day or something like that. You know, those are the things that don't show up in the box score by any stretch of the means. Um, and you may need to consult with your coaches to get that information. I understand, but it, it could still be helpful. So, um, uh, that being that, so many things that we've touched on that we want to talk about in more depth. But one of the things I want to get to that we haven't really talked about other than the fact that Mountain Union played is that Mountain Union uh, beat Franklin. And by the way, uh, you know, all the hullabaloo about Matt Pilato, who was maybe the second best quarterback for them last year, uh, not being on the team this year, uh, was was not a big deal. Neil Seaman didn't even start. Uh, Kevin Burke got the start at quarterback for Mountain Union and they didn't miss a beat on offense. Yeah, and, and in a way, that's typical Mountain Union. You know, I was seeing some of the tweets come over, and I was like, eh, ho-hum, you know, a Mountain Union, another great player, another great quarterback. But this was actually a big deal for them uh, this year. You know, they have uh, several guys 
that they're excited about. Uh, you know, Roman uh, Namdar is another guy. We saw him get a he get a snap or two in the Stag Bowl and break off a nice run. So Pilato, we've seen play. You know, he's he was a big six six guy, big arm, and uh, he's he's out of the picture. Seaman, we've seen. You know, uh, he's played in a couple big games. I'm thinking, I think in his freshman year, he had to come in 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 the Wesley game deep in the playoffs and and try to rally them and didn't didn't do so hot. And Kevin Burke was the one. I, I personally, at least, I don't I don't have. Uh, any recollection of having seen him play or know much about him, and, and he was outstanding on Saturday. 16 to 26 for 243 yards and a touchdown. Eight carries for 51 yards, including a a 21 yard rush. And you know we're we're just looking at numbers right now. Obviously, um, you know with Mount Union, uh, the fact that they play on uh, Sports Time Ohio means that we'll get a chance to see them uh, on uh, Directv at least for me at some My, point later I, this I season. Package the sports. There you go. I mean, it's it's the best twelve mo- bucks a month I spend, even if I only get to see you know a handful of OAC games, a WIAC game, uh, you know maybe an upstate New York game and Amherst Williams. Yep. Um, but if you're a Division three football junkie, uh, I would suggest getting that because there are occasionally games. You know, there's so many games obviously broadcast on uh, on live stream on video, but they all happen at the same time. Uh, whereas you know you can pop this on your DVR and watch on a Wednesday afternoon. Um, well, now that I'm not doing D3 sports, uh, even remotely full time anymore, uh, I can't do it on a Wednesday afternoon, but you get the, you get the picture. Um, so one of the things that I had always, um, if, if there was anything, anything at all, you could remotely say, uh, Larry Karras does that is maybe not the best. How about that? That's the best way I could put it. I just have always felt that he is really, really loyal to his upperclassmen, and you know usually that's a good thing. But when you're when you're a program the quality of Mount Union, and you've got 200 guys on the roster, odds are, you know, Nate Kamick is sitting on your bench and not starting for the first 12 games because there's an Aaron Robinson ahead of him starting at running back, for example. I I just that's I good. felt I I felt occasionally. You know, maybe he he hangs on to guys too long, um, uh, and you know, and I don't know. Uh, not having seen Kevin Burke play, I was just surprised that um, you know that someone replaced the incumbent. That just doesn't seem to happen very often with Mountain Union, at least not at the uh, at the primary positions. Well, and and we'll see this play play out over the course of the season. But it either says a lot about Kevin Burke and the kind of player he is. Or maybe it says something about how how the coaching staff feels about Neil Seaman that he hasn't developed in, in the way that they want to see. Uh, you know, sometimes though, you mentioned it, Pat. When there's that much talent in a program, you just have have a couple guys, and you don't know which one is going to emerge. And and at some point, a lot of times, a quarterback, you got to make a decision on somebody so you can give them the the lion's share of the reps and practice. And when you're stuck with two guys and neither of them take control of the job or they're both so talented you want to get them on the field or you have three guys I mean at least in that sense uh, you know it's probably not good news that that Pilato's gone but at least you know they they may be closer to, to settling on a guy between Burke and Seaman I thought the player that stood out again this is from afar I wasn't I wasn't at the game oh I know where you're going here I hope <laughs> Chris Denton yes Seven catches for 89 yards, and those were probably seven of his, not his most impressive plays of the day because he had two punt returns that he took to the house. 65-yard punt return. He averaged 37 yards on four punt returns. And, you know, you you got to think, if you're, a, if you're Mount Union, 
um, you're receiving a lot of punts. <laughs> you know, uh, defensively, uh, that that program has been so good defensively for so long that uh, the uh, the the special teams play in terms of punt return game is, is huge for them, and and that's a a gigantic shot in the arm. That's not just a spark. You know, I, I think Denton kind of burst on the scene last year, obviously with the uh, with the game-winning touchdown catch against Baldwin Wallace, hyphen, no hyphen, you know, whatever. Um, you know, but to see him, uh, you know, be the leading receiver, although Jasper Collins, I think, is obviously still consensus the best receiver, if not the best offensive player on the team. Um, you know, to see him burst into the open as a receiver is a uh, is, is another good sign, but I think, to be honest with you, it was inevitable. Yeah. Pat, you mentioned that, that Mountain Union defense, too. You, you know, that's their hallmark, and, and you don't get as far as they get in the playoffs without playing good defense. It's hard to believe that f- this happens all the time, and pe- people from outside Division Three don't believe it. it. This is Franklin is really one of the top 20 teams in the country, and they got uh, held to 4 of 19 on third down. Um, not very good. <laughs> I, I, I lost track of the total yardage number, but it, 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 you know Johnny West is a guy who's probably going to have a bunch of, um, you know, 250 yard, 300 yard passing games on the season. He was 17 to 37 for 146 yards, and Franklin is, is now familiar with this feeling of um, because they scheduled Whitewater last year. We're going to play the Mountain Unions and the Whitewaters of the world because we we want to get to that level, and they they may they take their lumps. But you have to respect them for the fact that they want to get where where those two two programs are. They know that you're not going to get that uh, you're not going to get that game by just playing any old team you can play in Indiana. Uh, you know that's nearby, so you, you go out and you schedule them out and you, you take your lumps. And and Franklin is is maybe the the prime example of what I was talking about earlier in the podcast. A team that is going to take its lumps in week one had high hopes for the season. Probably a lot of guys in that program thought we can we can beat Mountain Union. You know you go in there as a player believing in yourself and it's hard to, to swallow when when um you know a team that good comes in to your place and beats you 45 to 7 uh, but franklin probably going to be very good this year i would still count them as the favorite in uh in the heartland elsewhere in the oac i think one of the uh well actually there's more than one big surprising result in the uh oac on this list of uh things i want to talk about today uh one of them is the uh is the is the John Carroll St. Norbert game and not just the novelty of the fact that it's in Ireland. And you can read more about that on our blog, the daily dose, where we have, um, you know, a running blog from John Carroll about the experience, but how about the experience of, uh, just blowing the doors off St. Norbert by the score of 40 to three, you know, I think it, it, you, you kind of know, or you kind of think that middle of the pack OAC team is, uh, is supposed to be better than the team that might be the second or third best team in the Midwest Conference, but it was really, really forcefully put on display. Yeah, 40-3 to is, is no way to start the season. And uh, for St. Norbert, traveling all that distance and having all the pomp and circumstance, you know, I don't, I don't know if they didn't, they didn't handle that well or they just not as good as John Carroll. But John Carroll's been a team that, you know, at one point, Pat, when, when we started doing this, they were the, the, the class of the OAC right up there with, with Mountain Union. And uh, there's been so many other teams over the years who, who've emerged to be that that second second fiddle to Mountain Union. The Ohio Northern has done it. Baldwin Wallace has done it. Um, Capital Cap has done it. And and now Heidelberg, I think, is is the is the team gonna fit. You know, Otterbein was that was that team once. And you know, now you got Otterbein is a team that that um, struggled to beat Gallaudet 
for, for two years running, including a 15-0 win on, on Saturday in week one. So now to see John Carroll kind of rise back up or, or at least, you know, beating St. Norbert is a fairly impressive win, beating them that handily, I think. You know, maybe maybe do we start keeping an eye on on John Carroll again, or does this mean St. Norbert isn't the class of the NWC like it's been for so long? You know, again, uh, you know, the past few years it's been Monmouth and St. Norbert, and now you see Illinois College coming up as well. Um, I don't know if it's changing of the guard or just uh, just one of those week one you know kind of fluky results. It may be both of those things, uh, but when you start a transfer quarterback who breaks Tom Arth's uh, single-game yardage passing record, uh, that's Mark Myers, who is uh, 30 of 43 for 457 and five touchdowns, uh, there will be reason to keep an eye on John Carroll. Uh, on the uh, reverse side, a, a, uh, I guess whatever the opposite of a feather in the cap for the OAC would be, a, uh, yeah, I'm not going to guess, uh, the, the uh, Ohio Northern's overtime loss to North Carolina Wesleyan. Yeah, the North Carolina Wesleyan was a was a program too that not not too long ago had uh, upset ten and zero Washington Jefferson program in the first round, and we we felt like you know they they're a brand new program. Um, what five six seven years ago now I, I lose track. To be I think honest it's with more you, than that even. but they, they were they were on the rise, and then boom, last year fell to two and eight, and so um, that that was a little bit of a surprise to see that score, and, and I think we had pretty high hopes for Ohio Northern, but again, week one. You know, uh, you know, sometimes the road trips are, are, are different than what D3 teams are used to. The opponents can catch you off guard. And that, that's a pretty uh, – that was a surprising result, one of the big surprises, I think, of, of week one. Yeah. Uh, this is this is year nine for the Battling Bishops. But, yeah, as you mentioned, uh, they they really fell off the table last year. They went from 8-3 and three in 09, 7-3 in 2010 to 2-8 last year. Uh, so maybe this is a sign that they'll bounce back. And then there's, you know, one more – uh, maybe a surprising result or, or just surprising in terms of you mentioned it, I think on Twitter, how, or maybe to me on the phone, I don't even remember how the fortunes for Wittenberg and capital have changed with the uh, Wittenberg crushing capital. Yeah. There was a time maybe around Oh five Oh six where capital was really good. In fact, I think they finished year uh, third in our poll one year. Yes. They were the only team that, that pushed Mount union in the, in the playoffs. And yeah, that used to be a game where Wittenberg was was you know the, maybe the class of the North Coast, and Capital was one of the top teams in the OAC, and Capital would win that game forty five seventeen. And now you know times really have changed. Capital is uh, certainly not the same program, um, and Wittenberg, I think Wittenberg and, and Wabash. There was a, lo- a long time for with North Coast teams where I, I had them lower on my ballot than the the general public would have them. The general public, the the general voters would have them in the poll you know I, I would always think and eh, 10 is a little too high for a north coast team but i think you, you look at the way uh wabash and wittenberg have performed uh you know wabash with that the, the beating north central in the playoffs last season and, and going to mount union and uh you know have playing a 20 to 8 game and then wittenberg you know coming right out of the gate in, in week one i think um it speaks pretty highly of that conference some teams ended long losing streaks. We mentioned Hamlin having uh, lost 16 consecutive games. Uh, they defeated uh, Minnesota Morris. Uh, Juniata, which maybe not had as long a losing streak, but was 1-9 last year and denied Teal an opportunity to, uh, to end its long losing streak. And then uh, Becker gets uh, off the schneid as well. 
Yeah, I've got to correct myself from earlier, too, on the Hamlin score. I think I said they they scored 45. They scored 37 on Saturday, but they scored 41 all last season. They were shut out seven times. So, you know, that, that was really one of the probably one of their not proud moments in a, in a kind of a proud football history at Hamlin. And, uh, you know, to get to get back on the winning side, I think is a big deal because again, you go back, you know, week one, when you're in a conference like the Mayak and you're one of the low teams, you, you're going to take your lumps all through the season. And, and you, you talked about it with Knox and, and some of these, other, you know, Becker has struggled and it's nice to see those teams get a chance to, to taste victory. Juniata beating Teal 16, 13 and uh, Becker under the lights on Friday night with a win against Fitchburg State by the score of 13-3. to uh, That's not the only ECFC-NFC game. Um, I think the the if, if there's one that everybody was looking at, at least in those two conferences, Norwich coming out and beating Western New England uh, has to be looked at as a little bit of a surprise. I mean, Norwich, you know, for those who don't know the story, Norwich used to be in the Empire 8, and they used to be the doormat in the Empire 8. Uh, then they... Uh, moved down to this, uh, what was the brand new conference then, the Eastern Collegiate Football Conference, and they were been fairly dominant there. Uh, won the conference last year, got into the playoffs, uh, found themselves trounced in the first round at Delaware Valley, and then, um, you know, the one would think that the rest is history, but at least uh, Norwich making a little bit of a step forward here with a with a non conference win against one of the contenders in the other conferences in its area. Yeah, and one of the cool finishes of, of Week One too, Western New England put together a uh, eight-play, fifty-five-yard drive, kicked a field goal to go ahead, twenty-four, twenty-three, with a minute four left. Norwich got the ball back and uh, ten plays, sixty-three yards, kicked a twenty-seven-yard field goal to win it. So, you know, those are games they happen across the country. And if you happen to be at one of those games on Saturday, where you know you get a couple of different scores in the last few minutes of the fourth quarter, uh, those are some of the, the the most fun games you can ever go to. You know there are so many games that happen, and we're uh, <laughs> we're already really close to an hour. Um, I don't know how much we can fly through. Um, you know, Willamette, for example, Josh Dean uh, throwing you know that many touchdown passes and then beating Harden Simmons. You know, Willamette throwing the ball. You know, uh, something that didn't happen quite so often uh, before. But now with uh, you know a new head coach, that uh, is something that uh, they kind of came out and really made a statement that that was going to change. Uh, Oshkosh versus Central, that's a game that, uh, you know, that has been good. Uh, these are two programs, you know, one that's had been good for a long time, one that's got a great quarterback and is trying to be good, and Oshkosh really blew the doors off Central on Saturday. Um, you know, Millsaps had lost three in a row. They'd lost five out of six in the backyard brawl against uh, Mississippi College. You know, those two teams, uh, those two schools separated by just eight miles in Mississippi, and uh, Millsaps finally turned the table on the Choctaws after, uh, you've, you know, it's a senior class at least that gets the claim they had one win in that rivalry. And then, you know, we, we briefly mentioned uh, the NJAC, and then the Empire 8 went 7-0 and this week. That's a, there's a, there were a lot of great things that happened in week one, and there's even more that we're not going to ha- be able to talk about, but you can read about during the week on d3football.com. Yeah, well, and, and again, you got those around the region, seven different columns coming out on Tuesday and uh, and Wednesday and then uh, around the nation on Thursday. Pat, you, you mentioned uh, Oshkosh out of the WIAC. Uh, maybe not the you know most impressive win from from, from the WIAC on, uh, on week one. No, that's true. I mean, uh, Wisconsin lacrosse uh, really took advantage of North Central's mistakes down the stretch, and North Central needs to uh... – 
needs to be better than that. I mean, look, lacrosse was a team that ended up three and seven last year, but it is kind of deceiving uh, because of the YX scheduling foibles last year and this year. Um, lacrosse had to play Whitewater twice, so you know that's two basically unwinnable games because. Whitewater hasn't lost to anybody for in the last 46 games. Uh, and then they played a lot of close games as well. So they ended up with a record that doesn't look so good, but they were they were in a lot of games. Um, and, you know, for them to be in this game, maybe not necessarily surprising, but, uh, you know, the, to come away with the win on the road is a little bit surprising, obviously. And, and this is starting to turn in North Central's MO. You know, lost to, to Redlands last year early in the season, and now they're starting to be that team that... that blows a game early and it has to, you know, blow through the CCIW to, to get get in the playoffs. And for, for a team that we consider to be one of the ten elite programs in Division Three, they sure do stumble an awful lot. You know, count that that playoff game uh against Wabash, count Redlands, count Lacrosse, you know, that's three of their last twelve games we thought that they probably should have won and, and they didn't. You know, it's not like they they've but, you know, go, gone all the way deep in the playoffs and lost to Whitewater or Mount Union. You say, well, you know, we understand how that happens. They, 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 they stumble a little bit. Yeah, they did do that once. They lost to uh, Whitewater in the quarterfinals a couple of years ago. But, yes, you're right. And here's the last five possessions for North Central on, uh, on Saturday. Interception, fumble, fumble, interception, interception. And that's, uh, that's no way to win a football game. No, that's the recipe for getting beat. Uh, you mentioned we mentioned Rowan Delaware Valley pretty briefly. I thought uh, the NJAC pretty much flipped what we thought in the preseason on its head in in one week. You got uh, Cortland State, Montclair State, and Kane, three best teams in the NJAC the last season, maybe the last two seasons, and uh, all three of them lost. Kane lost at home under the lights against Albright. Uh, I think it was a pretty big comeback. By Albright, too. Kane went scoreless for the last 28, 29 minutes in that game uh, while Albright came back and beat them on their home field. Uh, Cortland State, Montclair State. Uh, Montclair lost to Lebanon Valley. Cortland State, mm, drawn a blank. Buffalo but, State. State, that's right. Your boys. Yeah. <laughs> See, you knew I was going to do was going to, yeah. Buff State, yeah, scored 49 points, uh, I think, I believe, if, I, if I'm remembering this off top. Uh, 49-31. So, you know, the three big teams in the NJAC lose. Rowan upsets number nine, DelVal, um, Delaware Valley, if, you want me, if you're not from, uh, from out east and, and you haven't heard of them before. Um, and William Patterson was another team I was keeping my eye on. They weren't that impressive. They scored nine points. They won, but it uh, wasn't a very impressive win. I thought the impressive win from the NJAC, actually the surprising one, was Brockport and the margin they did it over uh, against Lycoming. Yes, and, and uh, defensively as well. Uh, holding uh, holding Lyco to two points, pretty impressive. Uh, Lyco's a team that's been in the uh, in the conversation in the MAC for the last few years, and obviously is a. I think we could call them a Division Three power back in the '90s. Um, you know, to, just to elaborate about what Keith said about Buff State, uh, in the course of our conversation, where we rank all 239 teams for uh, for kickoff, ranking every team from top to bottom. I kept pushing for Buffalo State to move up. No, we gotta, we can't, we can't rank them yet. You know, when we're talking about teams in the hundreds, can't rank them yet. We're talking, I think, about teams ranked in the nineties because I really wanted to get them as high as possible. I really thought that they were going to have a, that they're going to have a good year. And well, for one week, I feel pretty good about it. Um, you know, the uh, the the Empire Eight coaches didn't rank them very highly. We didn't end up ranking them 
as highly as I wanted to in kickoff, but um, they did beat Cortland State, so they got their uh, they got the uh, a non-conference win there uh, under their belt and a win against a uh, rival and a team that they hadn't beaten uh, in its last six tries. And they didn't just beat Cortland State; they put up 706 yards of offense. So your pick is looking pretty good. I you know I had some some. We try not to root, but when you make those predictions at the beginning of the season, you sometimes take a look at it. Uh, I thought my Randolph make that Randolph make Johns Hopkins game threw my Centennial Conference and, and ODAC sleeper picks right out the window. Uh, Susquehanna also won uh, on Saturday, but and they play Johns Hopkins, I believe, next week. And uh, so I'll find out really quickly if, if Susky's any good. But really, I, I didn't think Hopkins was was going to be uh, very good this season, and and uh, you know, just by by the sheer number of of people that they lost, and and they came out and played really well. A couple. Um, I just want to throw in Franklin and Marshall beating WNL might flip how we uh, those two results might flip how we rank the Centennial versus the ODAC next year, depending on how things go rest of the year in playoffs and all that. And the Centennial, I think, had a had a down year last year. It wasn't their best, and uh, you know, have Johns Hopkins go ten and zero through the through the conference, and then lose in the first round of the playoffs didn't didn't help them much. Meanwhile, the ODAC was piling up wins against every USA South team in sight, so it had a really good uh, non conference record. And it, it, it's it's amazing, Pat. It doesn't take but one week to to make us everything we think we know. You know, we break down the numbers. Uh, we look at last year, we look at trends, we find out who's coming back, who's got new transfers, and you still get surprises all across the board. And, and that's why Division Three football is, is as fun a level of college football out there uh, as you can possibly follow because there's, there's the sheer enormity of it, but there's also, I think, the unpredictability of, of watching players who aren't professional players. you got guys who are good enough to play pros, guys certainly got skills, um, but also guys who have other interests and, and, and it just makes for so much unpredictability and it makes it a real great division to follow. And we're going to have to leave it at that, but that is the Around the Nation podcast here for week one of the 2012 season. You know, we, we mentioned that we talk about the, the week that will be, week one that was, was so darn interesting. It's a, a little tough to uh, give any... Uh, real time to what's going on next week but there's a lot of great things going on next week we get uh we get a lot of great matchups one that we kind of briefly mentioned uh was Warburg Bethel I remember that one out there got Wesley going to Salisbury yeah that's a surprise it's so early in the season right that game's traditionally later in the year um but because Wesley had to play this barnstorming schedule they're like one of the the last remaining independents you know uh, almost everybody's gotten into a conference, and if the uh, SCAC hadn't broken up with the SAA, I think we'd be down to three independents in, in Division Three because you know all the even the traditional independents have all linked up with the with the conference. You know Chapman going to the Skyac and, and and things like that. So yeah, you get um, Wesley has to play this this game early in the season, the Route 13 rivalry, and Wesley and. Salisbury has a tough schedule too because they they're in the Empire Eight now. They're going to have to face St. John Fisher, Alfred, and, and, and Ithaca later in the season. You know, maybe it's it's uh it, it's Utica on the rise, and then now you got Buffalo State in there too. Uh, so so Salisbury, you know, they don't want to lose this game early in the season, and they've been um pretty pretty much knocking on the door lately in, in terms of being a, a a top ten team. They're ranked seventh right now. Uh, Kane. 
goes to Mary Harden Baylor. I like I like to see Kane take that game early in the season to try to challenge itself. But and they're they're coming off a loss to Albright. Uh, Harden Simmons at Linfield. Redlands goes to North Central in, in what might be the payback game. And North Central went out to California last week, uh, last last week last year, and uh, and lost that game out there. Ended up still having a pretty good season. Uh, and now Redlands has to fly out to Illinois and play that game. You got St. John Fisher W and J, which uh, you know W and J isn't ranked, but that's that's a pretty pretty uh, good game against between two traditionally good programs. And uh, I, you know Bethel Warburg, like we mentioned, uh, I think maybe about the about the 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 you know, Dubuque and Platteville could be pretty interesting too. But yeah, I think also you know Birmingham Southern Huntington, um, you know that's a that's a game that's going to be key for that one Pool B playoff spot. Um, you know, someone needs to pretty much run the table, and I think only one of those two teams uh, is going to be in the picture at the end. Uh, I think the Cal Lutheran Pac Lutheran game is going to be going to be pretty interesting. Um, you know, Trinity Texas and Texas Lutheran um, may not be a, a playoff uh, battle game right now, but that's going to be a, a conference game next year as Texas Lutheran leaves the American Southwest Conference. And those are just you know. Those are just games that involve top twenty-five teams. Um, there, there's a there's a whole lot else going on, and uh, you know we'll continue to talk about it all week. Yeah, and, one one last one I want to throw out there, and it's amazing we're getting to these so early in the season. Uh, Merchant Marine and Coast Guard play their rivalry game next week, so you have two big rivalry games in that Wesley Salisbury game and in the Merchant Marine Coast Guard game. You already had two rivalry games this week: the backyard brawl you mentioned, Millsaps and Mississippi uh, College, and. Um, the Soup Bowl was this week. Greensboro beat Guilford by one point, fourteen thirteen. So, uh, throw throw a little shout out there. I know we said we were wrapping up five six minutes ago. This time we're really wrapping up, and uh, we appreciate everybody listening. So stay tuned for everything else that happens over the course of the week here at d3football.com. We'll have uh, around the region columns. We'll have our play of the week, uh, team of the week, which is our weekly honor roll. Uh, Keith's Around the Nation column on Thursday and then Triple Take on Friday which is uh, myself and Keith and Ryan Tips as we predict or try to predict what will happen next Saturday in week two. So for Keith, I'm Pat Coleman saying so long for Around the Nation podcast.